Search from the book of the Lord and read, said Jehovah God unto his prophet Isaiah. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the book of the Lord. Its design is divine. In it we read and we hear the heavenly voice that is from above. There is none other like it and we are so very blessed to share in it right now. It's time for us to discuss the very basic and most fundamental principles of the Bible. The famous Vince Lombardi, former head coach of the Green Bay Packers, who went on to win the first and second Super Bowls ever played in the National Football League, was famously quoted on day one of training camp as the men gathered together expecting to learn perhaps some fancy new moves and strategies of the game. Vince Lombardi simply took the football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And today, what I want to say to you is, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. While you may know many things about the Bible and its contents, today I want to challenge you to think about the most simplistic truths concerning the book, the book of the Lord. I want you to think about things as simple as its title, its name, its table of contents, its authorship, and of course, its message. I want you to think about these things because I want you to share in the same aspirations of David, who once said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And above all, I want you to share in its saving power. Revive me according to your word. Psalm 119 verse 25. Let's begin with the title of the book. Bible, Biblos, Psalm 40 and verse 7. The very name itself could truly only be worn by a book that is from the divine itself. In the 40th Psalm, the future Messiah proclaims these words in verse 7. Behold, I come. Now listen, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Some versions say in the roll or in the volume of the book. This was undoubtedly a reference to the whole of sacred writing up to this time. Eventually, this sacred passage would actually be quoted again by New Testament ministers in fulfillment of the Christ, the Messiah. Not writing in Hebrew, however, the prophets then penned the Greek word biblos, which in time gave birth to our anglicized version, the Bible. What does this word mean in essence? except that it is a reference to the one and only book that mankind should, mankind must give his wholehearted attention and respect. Sir Walter Scott, an interesting story is told about him who neared the end of his life. Scott was said to have asked his servant, bring me the book. The servant, knowing that Scott had thousands of volumes in his library, asked him which book, and to this, Scott replied, the book. There are other names with which the book bears, scripture, word of God, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, but it is, in essence, the only book that needs no title. 
It needs no proper name. It is the only book that can say again with Jehovah God, I am who I am, or perhaps better said, I am what I am. I am the book. There is none other, none other like me. To whom will you compare me? A proper name can hardly befit this book. It would be far too restrictive of its full character, its meaning. It is law, but it is also story. It is wisdom. It is instruction, but it is also comfort. It is hope. It is biography. It is a collection box of letters. It is a prophecy. And in some parts, it is comparable to a fantasy novel, though it tells of substantive truths that are more real than our very own reality. No one title can describe it. And so it is the book. Now, there are proper names that might be given to certain subsections of the book, however. One of the first unique qualities of the Bible are the two divisions that are found, commonly referred to as Old Testament and New Testament, words that we actually find, names that we actually find in the scriptures themselves. The Old Testament primarily reveals the will of God for his chosen people in Israel, and that is why it is also known as the Old Covenant, because it is a pact between God and the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 24 and verses 7 through 8 specifically affirms this pact between God and Israel. The well-known Moses becomes the human mediator between God and Israel. It's said in Exodus 24 verses 7 through 8 that Moses took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, scripture says, and then he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. Now, emphasis on the second person pronoun, you, because it is the children of Israel, whom the old covenant is specifically directed and personally bound upon. Some 1,500 years later, however, God would send another mediator to establish a new covenant. And this covenant would be made between God and all men across the globe, including the Israelites, who then would be freed from the specific laws and statutes of that old covenant. The new mediator says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And emphasis this time on the many, who now include all men everywhere, Jew and Gentile, slave and freed, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, civilized and uncivilized, the righteous and the sinner. Now someone will ask, what then is the purpose of keeping the old covenant in the book? The simplest answer is found in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. In other words, since the Old Testament still contains the spoken words of an immutable, unchanging, undying God, the wisdom and insight found within remains indispensable. Another important thing to keep in mind is that scripture indicates that the Old Covenant 
was much like an elementary school teacher helping to prepare us for the new mediator Christ, Galatians 3.24. An ancient Christian scholar once famously quipped, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. 2 Corinthians 3.14 confirms this truth when it speaks of the Old Testament like a veil, which when understood through Christ is a veil that is now lifted off, just like a bride who is now revealed to her husband. Now let me turn your attention for a moment away from titles and names and toward the table of contents. Another unique and immediate noticeable feature of the book is that it is not just one book, but an anthology or a collection of books. An estimated 40 plus authors are, have, been, have been counted in the work of the book. Now, this is not to suggest that there is lacking a common thread or a unifying theme that reveals one heart and one message of the book. What it does tell us is that this is no simple chapter book that can be read in a straight line. Each book possesses a writer, sometimes even multiple writers, and sometimes even at multiple points in time. Each writer possesses their own unique literary style so that some books are written in a chronological time frame, while other books are written more topically, and still other books may merely be a collection of songs, proverbs, or poems in no certain order, seemingly. Yet because each writer lays claim to divine authorship, it's truly difficult to tell where one writer begins and another may close. Many sacred songs of scripture, for example, are attributed to that man of fame, David, while another sacred hymn may be contested as the work of another. The history of Israel appears as one continuous work to such a degree that many Hebrew Bibles join together works like Samuel and Kings into one four-volume set. Now, I want to take a side note here. From time to time, you may run across some Bibles that include what is known as the Apocrypha. Uh, Apocrypha. There is much to say about these books, but suffice it to say for now that the Lord himself and his New Testament messengers never acknowledged these works in the book, which came truly within only a few hundred years before the Lord and his apostles. In Matthew 23, however, Jesus spoke of the blood of all the prophets from the time of Abel, concluding up to his time with the prophet Zechariah, whose ministry ended some 400 years before his coming. Again, we could make many other points concerning that, but that is one major consideration as to why we should be opposed to these so-called lost or hidden books of the Bible in our Christian Bibles today. Setting aside such concerns, however, there are many others like them. The Christian Bible in its current form remains the standard now since its final consolidation 
which was seen in the days of the early church. We might also add this final note on the table of contents page that equally remarkable to that of the wide and diverse array of human authorship, there is also a wide and diverse array of specific arrangement within the Bible. According to modern classifications today of genre and literary style, Now, I've already mentioned some of these styles, but more formally, we find within the Old Testament, for example, and for starters, four major genre divisions. The first of that is law, found within the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The second is that of history, found within the next 12 books, Joshua through Esther. Then we have five more books of poetry or what we might call wisdom literature, Job through the Song of Solomon. And lastly, we have the prophets, some major, that is large in content, Isaiah through Daniel, and some minor, that is very brief in content, Hosea through Malachi. This is the most typical arrangement and reason for their order in the Old Testament in our Christian Bibles today. And likewise, in the New, we find four more main genres in total. The first genre is generally referred to as the Gospels, that is, the first four books from Matthew to John, revealing the good news of Jesus Christ. Then one New Testament book of history, Acts, and from there we have 21 more books properly defined as epistles, which quite literally means to send news and in the form of what we now identify as letters. Then finally, there is what some call prophecy, where the Bible concludes with the revelation of Jesus Christ penned through his last and beloved apostle, John, but perhaps more accurately or at least better understood as apocalyptic, that is an unveiling of truths that are beyond this world in symbols and figures. Now, this arrangement may be subject to many historical variations, and that is why it is still human in many ways in nature. There are many reasons, though, to see how the arrangement has the invisible hand upon it and why so many minds are like-minded in identifying the arrangement of these books in the way that we do. In fact, it may be the closest thing we have to Jesus' own assessment, the assessment he himself approved of when he classified the Old Testament arrangement in terms of the law, prophets, and psalms, Luke 24, verse 44, which according to Jesus, by the way, all spoke of him. Which also brings us to this one last footnote, which in truth is really no footnote at all on the table of contents portion. There is another remarkable feature of the Bible arrangement when one begins to look through the interpretive lens of the coming Messiah. Some have charted out the following table where the law points us to the foundation for Christ. The history of Israel points us to the preparation for Christ. The poetry of the Old Testament points us to aspirations 
for Christ, and prophecy in the Old Testament points us to expectations of Christ. Moving on the word then to the New Testament, the Gospels point us to the manifestation of Christ. The book of Acts points us to the propagation or the spreading out of Christ. The epistles point us to the interpretation and application of Christ. And finally, the book of Revelation reveals the final consummation or marriage in Christ. Oh, amazing Bible, book divine, the book. The only observation I wish to make before we close is that which we can only briefly touch upon, but one that we certainly would not want to ignore in a lesson so fundamental as this, highlighting the principles, the fundamentals, the basics of the Bible. We must, we must, we must speak, even if only briefly, about the author and the message. Through human cooperation, the Bible is not without, the book is not without, but certainly the product of divine authorship. A well-known passage in church culture is found in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. We already noted it before. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. This means that the writings from Genesis all the way to Malachi, and by extension, the New Testament, which has now been made complete, is the breathed out revelation of God's very own words. When Jesus himself quoted scripture to that wicked one, he used very similar terminology to speak about the scriptures, saying that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. This relationship between divine author to human to paper becomes really visually expressive when we hear the words of Peter, who also comments on Scripture's divine origins, saying these words, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture, he says, is of any private origin. For prophecy, he's speaking about Scripture, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This moving along carries the metaphoric imagery of sailing upon a ship and being carried along by the wind. Now, we may not fully understand the process and thus the mystery of divine authorship through human cooperation, but we can still be certain that every word is the product of divine will. So much so that Jesus himself would say, the scripture cannot be broken, John 10, 35. That is, the scriptures cannot be destroyed. They cannot be abolished. They cannot be loosened upon the earth. Why? Because they are the very words of God, indestructible. They are like that of an iron stylus engraved in the rock forever, Job 19, verse 23. Possibly himself alluding to the word of God, the scriptures, the author, God himself. But of equally great importance is not just the messenger, but the message. Why has God spoken to us? What is the central proposition, if there is one at all, 
for mankind today in the book. It may help to break our answer down into two parts. The first part has to do with sin, which is primarily the purpose of the old covenant law. The apostle Paul said in Romans 3.19 that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. I realize that you may have heard me say a moment ago that the old covenant was a pact made with Israel, was primarily directed toward Israel. That part is still true. But what does not change is who God is and what God ultimately desires. Remember that the old law was intended to prepare us for Christ, the master teacher, so that by reading and carefully understanding the old law, every mouth may be stopped. Every person in this universe may soon realize their sins and their transgressions, which that is which leads us to the second part of Scripture's message, its purpose, its proposition, salvation, which is primarily the purpose of the new covenant law. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Jesus himself said, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. The New Testament even tells us that if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. The Bible, therefore, is a message of sin, but it is also a message of salvation. And that is essentially God's message from heaven to earth. This is a Bible. It is the book from God. It has the design of that which is divine, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Blessed is he who hears the words of this book and keeps those things that are written in it. I want to thank you for listening in at this time. And I want to leave you with words from the first stanza and refrain of the inspiring hymn written by John Fawcett, Precious Bible, Book Divine. Here's what he says, and I'll leave you with this. How precious is the book divine by inspiration given. Bright as a lamp, its precepts shine to guide my soul to heaven. Holy book divine, precious treasure mine, lamp to my feet and a light to my way to guide me safely home.